This is Saster's Founders Favorite Series, where you can hear some of the best of the best from Saster speakers. This is where the cloud meets. We're already counting down to Saster Annual 2020. For our loyal podcast listeners, we want to give you $100 off towards your ticket. Just buy your ticket using code FAVE100. Up today, Social Chorus co-founder Nicole Alvino. So I'm in the Cayman Islands downtown at a law firm looking at 10 stacks of documents that I'm about to sign. I've been given power of attorney by the Fortune 7 company to buy a $400 million Turkish power plant. I was 23 years old. I was working for Enron. Enron, at its peak, was a darling of Wall Street. Meteoric stock rise, disintermediating stodgy industries, making markets and everything from natural gas to electricity, trading weather derivatives and broadband capacity. Enron's mission was to change, be its engine, then capitalize on the endless possibilities that change creates. When I joined the highly coveted CEO SWAT team, the first thing I was told by my boss, who went to jail, was we're smarter than our bankers. That's what you need to know. We're smarter than our bankers, we're smarter than our attorneys, we're smarter than our accountants, we're smarter than our competitors. That was the ethos of the company. We're smarter and therefore we can get away with whatever we want. With that culture, it took only two months from the first disparaging Wall Street Journal article to bankruptcy. Fortune 7 company, two months, from first article to company, done. At that time, I was working for Enron in London and decided I needed a break. I had applied to business school. Two of the people who wrote my letters of recommendation were convicted, so only lost a few sleepless nights waiting for the admissions committee to not think I was crazy, psychotic. Luckily, they didn't. But for me, it was completely disheartening. I love business, I love disrupting industries, but what does this say? Was it me, was it them, was it all of business? Took a backpack, went to the South Pacific to figure out what was for me. When I found myself giving unsolicited marketing advice to the surf outfit and helping the diving companies streamline their operations, I realized that yes, in fact, I do love building businesses. And I made an important decision. I said, I'm only going to start companies where I can control the culture and the ethics so an Enron situation doesn't happen again. Today, Social Chorus is the second company that I founded. Um, we're a workforce communications platform. We work with some of the biggest brands in the world to help them better connect and communicate with their employees. Um, we work with 10 of the Fortune 50. I get to spend my days with those executives who are using communication to build culture based on values and who are embracing strong leadership. So today I'm going to share five lessons rooted in bad behavior from Enron, um, but with the silver lining of executives and leaders who are doing it right. And I would just offer that we're all leaders. We're here 
building ARR, building our customer base, building our headcount, growing our valuation. And when you think about your impact and your legacy, I would offer that it comes more from your values than your valuation. Lesson one, tell the truth. Be transparent. Elizabeth Holmes, amazing visionary, was going to change the world with a pinprick of blood, early detection of rare disease, cancer, truly changed the world. Unbelievable book called Bad Blood, highly recommend it. If you don't have time to read the book, spoiler alert, she lied. The whole thing was lies. Never had a product that really worked. She lied to employees, to investors, to partners, to the media, to regulators. The whole thing was a lie. It's actually too bad she and Jeff Skilling, the former CEO of Enron, would have been good friends in prison. He just got out in the fall, and I will tell you 10 years in prison did not look good on him. So if you're thinking about that, I'll never forget the last all hands that Enron had. Fanfare, he was up on stage, loud music, confetti from the ceiling, people bouncing around a beach ball. Stock price had tanked. He had just called an industry analyst an asshole on the earnings call, career limiting move. And he stood there and said, the market doesn't understand us. We're completely undervalued. Now is the time to buy. Double down. Put your pension in. Kind of, we're all in. We've never been in, in a better position. Meanwhile, he was selling all of his stock, and the company was bankrupt three months later. A CEO doing this right is Mark Bitzner. He's the CEO of Whirlpool. Whirlpool's been one of our customers for several years. He came on about two years ago, and he wanted his tenure as CEO to be one that was about transparent communication with their employees. He has 100,000 employees, most of whom are in manufacturing, and he really wanted that direct line of communication. So he uses our platform. He has a channel called Mark's World, W-H-I-R-L-D. He is also clever. And that's a way for him to send direct messages to the field and get things back. So he answers questions, he has an open forum, and really encourages people to give feedback and ask the hard questions. That's telling the truth, that's being transparent, that's doing it right. Lesson number two, use the grandmother and the five-year-old lens. So if you always, if you think, is, is this a right decision? Should I be doing this? You hear people say, oh, can you explain it to your grandmother? SAS, we're all in SAS. None of our grandmothers know what SAS is. So if you're explaining to a grandmother, you usually talk about the value of your product or service. We help companies better communicate with their employees. Okay, my grandmother can get behind that. My five-year-old, by the way, this is my five-year-old, second of three five-year-olds, so I've gotten good at explaining things to five-year-olds. It's always why, but why, mommy? Why do people want your apps, why? And so for him, it's to make the people feel better about the company they work for. A five-year-old is always looking at the lens of how does this make sense in a right versus wrong, in a kind or unkind. And so if you take the lens of the grandmother to break it down and the five-year-old of the 
but why, that's a good check. At Enron, one of the infamous deals was called Raptor. All of the deal structures at Enron were either named after birds of prey or wine that we wanted to serve at closing dinners. So yes, we had Screaming Eagle and Chateau Margaux as deal structure names. The Raptor deals were interesting. It was in the time when Enron was trading broadband, trying to go the last mile, implement video on demand in Europe in 2000, and we had a venture arm. Investing, late 90s, Enron, and it's worse smarter than everyone else, let's figure out how we can mark to market, so take the earnings when a company IPOs, and then not have to ever write it down when, inevitably, the value goes down. All sorts of lawyers, accountants, lots of different structures created back at Hunt Law in the Cayman Islands, splitting voting interest, economic interest, came up with a transaction that did just that, basically hedged against any losses, and Enron was able to take the earnings at the peak and not have to write anything down. If you were to explain that to either your grandmother or your five-year-old, the only way to say it was, we kind of didn't want to follow the rules and we did what we wanted. Clearly, that lens was not used in those deal structures. A CEO using this lens and doing it right, Andrew Liveris, the CEO of the Dow Chemical Company, another one of our customers, after the Charlottesville riots, he came out using our platform to his workforce, again, most of whom are in manufacturing, and said at Dow, we will not tolerate racism, bigotry, or hatred. He did the right thing, he made that statement, and followed up with several actions. That's something that both your grandmother and your five-year-old can get behind. Lesson number three. Empower your employees to have a voice. Unfortunately, we've hit a tipping point of bad behavior, which on the flip side has sparred a collective consciousness around action. So this is Google, one of the most progressive companies in the world. 20,000 employees, 20,000, walked out in protest to how women were being treated. Their CEO encouraged it, and when we think about the, the higher we get in an organization, the more curated our view becomes. We don't necessarily see and hear things from everyone. You have to let your employees have a voice so you do know what's going on. At Enron, when I got back from the Cayman Islands, something that was quite perplexing for me was the number of companies that were headquartered at Hunt Law. So imagine 10 columns of company names, little bronze placards, about 100 in each row. 88 columns of those, so about 800 companies were Enron companies. So I came back, and at Enron, if you weren't guzzling the Kool-Aid and agreeing with anything that the senior leaders were doing, you were basically out. So even bringing this up, was a foreign concept, employees did not have a voice. And I said, is, is this normal? Do all companies do this and create all these structures? 
And the answer was, oh yes, every public company does this. We're just pushing the envelope. We're changing the world. Remember, we're smarter than everyone. A CEO who's done this right to give employees a voice not only to bring up the bad behavior, but to help drive culture is MGM Resorts. Another one of our customer, their CEO, Jim Mullen, got up. The shooting last year at, in Vegas was at Mandalay Bay, so one of their properties. They actually used the one-year anniversary as a way to bring their culture together. So it was a healing moment led by him to let their employees really have a voice and have this moment of collective healing to build their culture. So giving employees a voice to help drive culture and to alert you to bad behavior. Speaking of bad behavior, get rid of the bad apples quickly. People don't change. If someone does something that's inappropriate, they will do it again and again. Enron was full, full of bad apples, full of bad behavior. Everything from affairs in the office, literally in the office, team lunches at strip clubs, boozy boondoggles in Cabo, where everything you could imagine happened, parties with ice luges, with Jägermeister, with the big E carved into the side. Everyone, if we had, there was a tipping point of bad apples basically running the company. As a leader, you have to get rid of them, otherwise it's, you're culpable and you're condoning the behavior. We had an incident last year at our user conference. We had an employee who was acting inappropriately. We heard this from a customer and two of our employees, and we had to get rid of that individual, no questions asked. The minute that we would have allowed that person to stay would have meant we condone it, it would have happened again by this person and others. You just have to get rid of them. Lesson number five, if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. We're all risk takers. Part of what we're doing and building our businesses is taking risks. That's how our companies are great. It's really hard. If things seem too easy, they're probably not right. Back to Enron and this Raptor transaction, part of what made the deal legal was an outside equity partner that would come in. So to capitalize special purpose vehicles, you needed 3% outside equity. The way that this worked was six Enron employees were asked to contribute their own money, $5,000 each, and in 30 days, they were unwinding the deal, went back to hunt law in the Cayman Islands, notice a pattern with the Cayman Islands, unwound the deal, they each got a million dollars. $5,000, a million dollars, 30 days, they were employees of the company who was doing this, basically no risk. And this was 20 years ago, we didn't have cryptocurrency, there was not this kind of volatility anywhere. That was just wrong. All of those six individuals went to jail. Shocker. And the fact that they thought that, that was okay, that's just how intense and crazy the hubris at Enron was. 
risks worth taking. We have a competitor who's a fast follower who want, who's dropping their prices. We say, we're going to raise them. That's a hard risk, and that's something that we've continued to do, and it's worked out for us. Those are the kinds of risks that are hard, that require integrity, and you don't know how they're going to turn out. So at Enron, I don't think anyone looked back and said, I really want to be the architect of the biggest bankruptcy in history, or I want to defraud shareholders today, or I want people to lose all of their pension because it's an Enron stock. It didn't start with that intent. Something upon reflection, 20-ish years later, is that the continuum from a light gray decision to the next is a little more gray to you're all the way in the black can go really quickly if you're only comparing to your last decision. And when we think about the people who took their $5 million or $5,000 to their million dollars, they probably would have never made that decision a year or two prior. But with every little decision, it became in the black. And so when we think about our cover story and what we've built as change agents, we're transforming industries, we hope we're changing the world for the better, really think about what will be on your cover and make sure it's something that both your grandmother and your five-year-old can not only understand, but be proud of. <laughs>